Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Focus this morning. Start in verse 11 and go to verse 16. To have those verses printed for you on your outline. Galatians may well be the first New Testament epistle written. It is a powerful, clear defense of the gospel message. Uh, chapter 1 sets a very serious, urgent, even confrontational tone as Paul works to defend the gospel that he and the other apostles had been preaching. Churches had been planted under the teaching of this supernatural gospel. So he writes with urgency to correct distortions that had come into the church. Then chapter 2 contains a a more personal defense of Paul's apostolic credentials because as an apostle, he's a prophet speaking uh, with the authority of God. And so while giving the authoritative message, he also reminds us that he is an apostle, a full-ranking apostle. Uh, As we come to verses 11 through 16, we see contained therein one of the clearest, most obvious understandable, unambiguous statements of the gospel found in all the Bible. Verse 16. But here, let's pick up Galatians 2, starting at verse 11, reading through to verse 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let us pray. Lord God, you are the lover of our souls and the giver of your only Son for the forgiveness of our sins. Give us lives that are in step with the truth of the gospel. We are indeed recovering legalists who continually default to the hellish idea that we can somehow earn your love by our works. We try to impose our rules on others to gauge if they are right with you. Forgive us for the way we forsake your grace by holding up our putrid deeds instead of totally resting upon the merit of Christ for salvation. We confess there is no greater doctrine for the church to accurately preach, guard, and walk in than justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Lord, open your word to us afresh this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are certain clashes that just cause you to hold your breath as you watch them take place. 
one such clash in the world of football happened this last week. Now, for 5.7 billion people of the world, football is what we call soccer. And this week had one of those epic clashes that you have to appreciate if you enjoy sports at all. And even beyond sports is the cultural trappings that come with this sport. And with the two teams that met, you had Manchester United representing England, an English club of legendary proportion there, with international stars from all over the globe playing on their team. On the other side, you had FC Barcelona. It was a team that also had international stars representing their storied and legendary tradition. You had people representing these stars, representing their nations, playing for these two legendary clubs. Uh, Ronaldo on one side, Rooney on one side, Tevez on one side. You had Eto, uh, you have Messi on the other side. Think of the players, uh, these people that typify the sport in the histories of these countries even as they come on the pitch to play a game, a championship this week. Who cares about who won? You stop and hold your breath when you see two powerhouses meet like this. Doesn't happen often. In all of biblical history, there are few confrontations, few clashes that top the clash that is referenced in our text today. You have Peter, the apostle to the Jews, being confronted by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, in a clash that still reverberates today, is necessary for today, continues to fuel the gospel today. This is what we have before us as we learn through this confrontation that it is necessary for such confrontations at times. In fact, staying in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the very phrase that comes from the passage before us, it may involve difficult confrontations, but the result will be a unified church that is used by God to have an eternal impact on the world. And please recognize what is at stake here. It's not that Peter has, has deserted the gospel doctrinally. He, he believes it. But what Peter has done out of cowardice and hypocrisy is that he has fallen out of step with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel means something, and our lives will then manifest it. But Peter's life wasn't manifesting it because of what he did. He wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel. Well, let's consider what is the truth of the gospel and being in step with it. Look at verse 14 of our passage. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? But notice the first part of verse 14. As Paul meets Cephas in Antioch, recognizing what had gone on, this transformation in Peter's conduct that did not properly match the message of the gospel that Peter himself believed and taught. His life did not manifest what was true about the gospel. He was succumbing to the pressure of the Judaizers to live and act a certain way, giving the impression that he believed this was a requirement for salvation. If God says we are right with him through faith in Christ, 
We ought not make people think that they have to follow certain traditions, do certain things, follow certain or keep certain rules to be justified. This was the effect of Peter's actions in Antioch and in other places, apparently. So Peter was out of step with the truth of the gospel. But again, what is the truth of the gospel? Well, earlier in our study, we learned in the first chapter, verses 3 through 5, Paul gives just a bit of an overview of the content of the gospel. There it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, this, from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In summary, uh, summary form, we have Paul giving uh, the essence of the gospel, God giving his Son for our sins. Christ the sacrifice in our place so that we would be accepted by God. This is not a message that Paul made up. In fact, in verse 12 of the same chapter, chapter 1, Paul says, this is not my message. This is not man's gospel. This is God's gospel. And it's the same gospel, by the way, that the Bible teaches from beginning to end. In the Old Testament, believers looked ahead to the payment God would make through his son, Through the sacrificial system, they saw ahead to what Christ would do on the cross and believed. Just as we look back at what Christ has done and believe, it has always been by faith in God's Redeemer that people are justified, are saved, are right with God. This is God's gospel. Paul summarizes it many times and in many ways. One of the best summaries happens in Romans 5 when Paul writes, God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So now we come to verse 16 in chapter 2 of Galatians. One of the most transparent explanations of the truth of the gospel in all of Scripture. Look closely with me at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's unpack this critical verse. Not justified by works of the law. First of all, to be justified means to be declared as righteous. Not just innocent, but righteous. To be justified means you are legally declared righteous. If you are justified in the Christian biblical sense, you cannot receive punishment because you are declared righteous. When God looks upon you, he sees the righteousness that has been given to you by him through faith 
in his son. It's his son's righteousness that is imputed to you, credited to you. So as he looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ as your righteousness, and you're justified. You're declared righteous, not by works of the law. Now, works of the law is a reference to any aspect of biblical rule-keeping, particularly what is known in the law of Moses, but not limited thereunto. In Ephesians 2, we see we're not saved by works, and it says it in a general sense. So it's not just limited to the law of Moses. It's the idea of keeping rules to be justified. Works of the law, rule-keeping, obedience is not what justifies us. Yes, obedience is commanded, brothers and sisters, always and everywhere. But there is a huge difference between saying that you're justified by keeping rules and you're justified, therefore, you should keep rules. Big difference, huge difference, life-altering difference. We're justified not by keeping rules. We're justified by faith in Christ so we can then obey. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before you, you have a hymnal. Take your hymnal, turn to page 871. A wonderful summary of the Bible's teaching on these two important components in the verse before us, justification and faith in Christ, are given for us by the framers of this wonderful document, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. It's based on the biblical data, and then it gives a summary question and answer. Look at page 871, question 33. What is justification? The answer, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous. You see the declaration of righteous. Accepteth us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, page 875, just a few pages ahead. The 86th question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is receiving and resting, trusting, believing, as he is offered to us in the gospel. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. Now, I understand there has been debate for a long time about the phrase alone. Well, it doesn't say in Galatians, by faith alone. The word alone doesn't appear, but Luther would say, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, it's clearly implied, and the Reformers got this right, that it has to be faith alone in Christ alone. If you add just a little bit of works, it's no longer justifying, it's by works. You can only be saved one or two ways, by keeping the law perfectly, by works, or by faith in the one who kept 
the law perfectly. We cannot keep the law or be justified by works. This is what he says. Even little works only by perfect obedience. Only Christ has accomplished this. So even if we would say it's faith in Christ, as some do, plus this or that, we are doing exactly what the Judaizers did. And even just a little bit of human merit mixed in makes it works. And we can't be justified by works. It says it clearly here. So it must be faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, look at verse 16 closely. You'll see three different ways Paul says this. So we don't miss this. Verse 16, three statements of the same thing. Verse, the first statement. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first statement of it. Second statement. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. In a case we don't get it then, the third time, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Crucial passage. Robert Rayburn summarizes this wonderfully in his comments on this verse. Listen to what Pastor Rayburn says. So there is the thesis. There are fundamentally only two ways of thinking about how people can be right with God. By what they do or by what Christ does for them. It matters not if in the former case, as would have been true for these Judaizers, the works that were required for justification were combined with faith in Christ. It is all or nothing. Any works at all makes it justification by works. It is works of any kind to any degree or Christ alone. That is the alternative. That is what makes Christianity so radical a message in a philosophy of life. It sets itself against not only every other religious idea, but the natural tendency of every human heart to hold salvation, at least to some degree, in one's own hands. How was Peter then out of step with the truth of the gospel? And how does this happen in our lives? Look at verse 11 as it begins this confrontation of the ages, for the ages. When Cephas, Cephas another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. See, word had gotten to Paul about what Peter was doing. What Barnabas, Paul's old buddy, was doing because of Peter. They started out in full fellowship with the Gentile believers, seeing the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles. Peter saw it. In fact, he was the first to see the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles. And he was in full fellowship, meaning that he was eating with them. And that may seem like a little matter to us, but in those days, for the Jew to eat with the Gentiles went against years of tradition that said that what the Gentiles ate was unclean. It's the way they prepared it. It's what they ate. It might have been what had been offered to, say, idols. So they were not to eat with the Gentiles. And even we can understand that eating with one another is fellowship with one another. It's communion with one another. Peter understood under the gospel that the unifying agent is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and it matters not your ethnic background, your cultural background, your socioeconomic background. Any of these things don't matter. In Christ, we're one together, and we eat together. And he got that. But then when these 
these guys that were associating themselves with James came in and said to Peter, hey, I smell ham on your breath over here. What are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. Come back. You're a Jewish. You should be with us. So what does Peter do? He violates what Paul says earlier, that if I fear man, I am not a servant of Christ. He knows this, but out of cowardice, an issue for Peter in his life, he starts acting like a Jew again just because he doesn't want these guys on him. He's scared of the circumcision party. It says that. Paul confronts him because this example is profound. It starts to trip up Barnabas. It trips up other Jewish believers who are misunderstanding and and could have the problem of, of getting convoluted in a distorted gospel, which is no gospel at all in their lives, and it's that serious. His life is not in step with the truth of the gospel by what he does here. This is sad because Peter knew better. Listen for a moment to the account where Peter has the opportunity to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Listen to what God does supernaturally to get Peter over this idea that he had to keep to old traditions and rituals to be right with God somehow. In Acts 10, starting at verse 9, just listen to the text. It says, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while uh, they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, a Gentile, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, three Gentiles, by the way. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you were looking for. What is the reason you are coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the Jews, was directed by the holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. He shared the gospel with them. Gentiles. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. His lodging is in the house of Simon the Tanner. Interesting, Simon the Tanner. Tanning itself would have been something, a violation against Jewish law. So Peter opened his mouth and said, listen closely. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. After recognizing that the gospel is to all tribes and tongues, still Peter falls prey to the fear of man when the circumcision party comes in and pressures him to go back to old Jewish traditions and laws that are working to be a hindrance to the understanding of these new believers. This is why it says in our text in verse 4, Paul writes, When I saw that their conduct was not in step 
with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, it's a public sin, so it had to be addressed publicly. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Certainly Peter believed the gospel of grace. Certainly he believed the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. But his life was hindering that belief and testimony. He was not in step with the truth of the gospel in that way. Withdrawing from the Gentiles to be more Jewish somehow. We are one in Christ across all lines. And herein is a wonderful lesson for us today. It is true that our behavior, our association, can in fact undermine our belief. What we say is true. It's possible to confess the gospel with our mouths, believe it in our hearts, but deny it by our lives. And we can see it all through church history in the church where the church practices some sort of discrimination, some sort of of partiality. And it hurts the testimony of Christ greatly. We get out of step with the truth of the gospel. When we make judgment about a person's race, about what class they may be part of, their economic situation, what family they should be part of, perhaps some sin they have committed. And we make judgment and partiality, we withdraw from them on those outward basis, or even something they've done, as if to say we're better which is a denial of the truth of the gospel, which says none of us are better. We're only right in Christ. Could not be a more fundamental living out of the gospel than a unified association with one another, unified under the gospel, regardless of whatever outward lines may be drawn between people. Notice who is blamed, by the way, bringing this hypocrisy on. Verse 12 in our text For before certain men came from James, James would have been seriously upset if he knew these guys were associating with him, giving him as their leader. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Remember, it's James who wrote from a different angle on this issue of justification, and his angle was simply that you can't just say something and not have any evidence in your life. It's a good part two to what Paul's saying, you you might say. But in particular, James says this, to be very careful, he warns, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It was very important to James in his epistle that we not practice favoritism. Yet these come from James, promoting hypocrisy among Peter, the Jews, Barnabas even. Well, how was Peter brought back in step? This is important. What does this teach for us today? Well, first of all, Peter was not brought back in step by Paul tiptoeing around what he was doing. Oh, I'll just wait and see. You know, maybe, maybe he'll, he'll, get, he'll understand. Maybe he'll... Paul wasted no time and went right to Peter, got in his face about this. It was too critical, too serious. That helped Peter ultimately. A, a stark confrontation is what Peter needed at that moment. It obviously had a positive effect. Hopefully, Peter remembered back to Acts chapter 10 or what happened in Acts chapter 10 and the vision he saw. Hopefully, that's the case. But think of what Peter says, most likely after this incident in Galatians, what he said in Acts chapter 15. Peter stood and said, the council of Jerusalem, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He gave to the Jews and he gave to us. 
And he made no distinction between us and them, Peter says, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to hear, to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Peter gets it. The correction has the effect of clarifying the message as Peter then declares it again in Acts chapter 15. And as far as Peter and Paul go, I think it's pretty clear what Peter thought of Paul. As he wrote later in his life, in one of the later books of the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Our beloved brother Paul, Peter says, about the guy who got in his face. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, and I love this line that Peter says. Listen to what he says about Paul. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do to the other scriptures. He gives Paul total apostolic authority and evidences for us the need to be submissive to what is biblically true. We see it in Peter's life. That should teach us today that we must confront these things. Tiptoeing around is not the biblical model. In love, confronting these things. This is what keeps not just the purity, but the potency of the gospel. Well, what is the result of staying in step with the truth of the gospel? Very simply, confrontation produced repentance or correction. That repentance correction prompted unity, unity and fellowship in the message itself, which had the effect of growing the church, reforming the church throughout history as this has been uh, relearned and reapplied and made fresh again. That's what causes reformation and revival. We could get rid of whole sections of bookstores, Christian Christian bookstores, if we would just go back to preaching the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. If we would see that happen, I promise you a revival like you've never seen in our time. Because every revival you can note always is tied to the degree to which God is sovereign over salvation, whether to the degree that faith is alone in Christ, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. As much as man gets in that mix, to that degree, it becomes ineffective. Now, we think for a moment, while well, our churches don't have more people, let's do this and do that and do the other thing. What we really need to do is say, maybe we're not preaching the message of faith alone by Christ alone. Maybe that's the problem. we got too many other things going around. A three-ring circus instead of a one-track message that pervades everything, faith alone in Christ alone, that message grows the church, gives it power. And I don't care if it adds more numbers, it'll give it depth and that will give it power. A deep church is much better than a wide, shallow one. This is the message that Luther understood. And Luther, as he preached in that huge cathedral that had about 50 people in it when he started as the priest there, had hundreds coming from everywhere because why? He preached the Bible in the message of faith alone and Christ alone. It's not tricky. We made it so complicated. Why? Because we're afraid of men. We're afraid of the circumcision party or this party, the social justice party, the tolerance party. And we've forsaken. We've fallen out of step with the truth of the gospel. 
no need. God has given us exactly what is needed, the gospel. Let us pray. Lord God, please give us lives that are in step with what we profess to be true about the gospel. Keep us from the various sins of partiality or favoritism or discrimination that seems to alienate other believers because we are different in some non-essential way. Father, we confess that your word is clear about the gospel. It is what Christ did, not what we do. It's the basis for our justification. It is because of what Jesus Christ did for us that you, O God, declare us not guilty and have now become our Father. Father, help us to stay in step with the truth of your gospel by the way that we live our lives, particularly how we treat others. Give us courage to confront legalistic aberrations of the saving gospel starting in our own lives. Lord, please grant a continuity between the doctrine of the church and the lives we live. Lord, give great unity to your church. Give a potency to your church as it is faithful to your message by your grace. Please, God, bring a revival of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone and the living out of the same to our churches so that we might see a great movement of your spirit once again and witness a modern reformation in our time. We pray this for your glory alone in Christ. Amen. We have the opportunity to respond in song and prepare our hearts for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Let's do 